Morning, church. Morning. Hopefully you can carry on with the conversations um, uh, after the service. Smith Wigglesworth is one of the heroes of faith who was around in the start of the 20th century. And when the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, he started an incredible ministry of preaching, seeing people coming to the Lord and and seeing fantastic healings take place, including at least 14 people being raised from the dead through his ministry. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that really got a hold of Smith Wigglesworth was the scripture that when Jesus said, greater things than these will you do, and he took that to heart and actually started to apply that and see these miracles take place. Now, one of the stories around Smith Wigglesworth is, you know, he was before TV, he wouldn't let any radio, newspaper or other book come into his house. The only book that was allowed there was the Bible. And he had spent hours reading it just to keep building up his faith. And uh, this morning we've got the second talk on our series uh, on, uh, around the Bible, which is one of our key themes for this year. And the title that I've been given is The Bible Worth Dying For. You know, the, you've heard before that the Bible is by far the best seller out there year on year. And uh, there is over 100 million copies published every year. As of September 2020, there were over 700 uh, different languages the Bible had been translated into, and more than 1,500 additional um, languages translated, the the New Testament was translated into, and that grows every, every year. And our access to the Bible today is better than it's ever been. Who's got the Bible on their phone? It's on the phone, on the internet, we all uh, have free access to the Bible. I wouldn't be surprised if everyone in the garden lounge uh, uh, here in the auditorium or um, if you're watching this online had at least one, if not multiple, written versions of the Bible in your possession. So it is easy for us, I think, to be complacent when it comes to the Bible because of how easy it is for us to access today. Yet it wasn't always this way. People have given their lives so that we can have the printed word of God readily available in a language that we understand. The privilege that we have today, friends, was dearly bought. One of my cousins uh, quite a few years ago um, there are people in the uh, who uh, in the persecuted church areas and give their lives for their faith uh, if they found in possession of a bible that can cost them their lives one of my cousins quite a few years ago would go on biking tours and she'd go into some of these countries and rather than luggage in her, in her packs and her panniers they were stuffed full of Bibles for the underground church. And she would, if, if she got found with those in her possession, she'd get into very serious trouble as she'd go through the borders and, and her and the team that they're going with, they would pray and every time 
they got through and were able to give these Bibles to, to people who really hungered for them like I don't think any of us have ever hungered for Scripture. It's people have given their lives. And if we think just about the English version that we have available, just a couple of notable people who gave their lives are in the 1500s. William Tyndale, a translator and publisher, was burned at the stake in 1536. Cromwell, beheaded in 1540. Latimer, burned at the stake in 1555. Cramner, burned at the stake in 1556. And there were many, many more around then who lost their lives because of the because of the Bible and trying to actually change society so that we could actually have a written version of the Bible that people could understand, the lay people could understand. And Tyndale said this about the Bible, it is not enough to read and talk of the Bible only, but we must also desire God day and night, instantly to open our eyes and to make us understand and feel wherefore the scripture was given that we may apply the medicine of Scripture, every man, to his own sores. What a, pay, what a way people had with words back then. You, you can just feel the way the Bible can heal us from our pain as we read it, can't you, in, in reading what Tyndale said. So the Bible that we have today came at no small cost, and we really need to treat it with the reverence and respect that it deserves. And there is incredible value in reading the Bible and studying it. And if we jump into James chapter 1, and initially looking at verses 5 to 8, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And the first image in the, the focus for 2022 for us, for the themes that we're looking at, is the hull of a boat. The idea being that a good hull provides security when waters are turbulent. And in this case, the hull represents the Bible or the Word of God. God inspires scripture. And without a good boat, we'll be tossed around and even eventually sink. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Christ is described as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, Christ is also described as the word of God. Jesus is God's word, God's power, and God's wisdom. And all, all those thoughts are intrinsically linked through God's written word, the Holy Scripture, we discover wisdom and power and a firm foundation, a strong, sturdy boat. Without the Scripture, we will become blown and tossed by the wind, double-minded and unstable, and perhaps sinking to obscurity. You know, the Word of God is powerful. And many of you will know this, but there are two Greek words translated as word in English. From, from the original Greek. And the first is logos, the logos word of God, or written word, meaning the Bible, meaning scripture. It is a logos that provides everything we need to know to be able to live godly lives full of wisdom. And if we have, a, have another look in James chapter 1, but this time from 22 to 25. Do not merely listen. Now, just a little bit of an aside. Um, 
In the early church, you know that they met from house to house. So they didn't all bring their Bibles along or their phones with the Bible on them. Generally what they would be doing is they'd go to someone's house and someone would, would have a scroll there and they'd open up the scroll and, and someone would read the scroll. So they would be listening to the word. So just putting a bit of context into what James is saying here. So for us, he could easily be saying, so when you read the word, but in the context he's writing to it, it's when you listen to the word. So um, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed. They will be blessed in what they do. Now, do not merely listen to the Logos or the written word. James, or, or just uh, read the written word. But from the Logos, that is how we learn how we should live. When we start doing what the Bible stay, says, we start acting in life-producing ways. It is the Bible we need to read regularly, get to know, study, and become intimate with so that we can grow in wisdom. The second Greek word that is translated as word in Scripture is the word rema. And we find that used in a passage like Matthew 4.4 where Jesus answered the devil and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every rema word that comes from the mouth of God. And the, uh, the word rema means revelational, spoken word of God. And we can't just live on natural sustenance. Jesus was saying you can't just live on bread alone. And, and I do wonder whether Jesus wasn't putting a little bit of a jewel thing here saying you can't just live on natural food or you can't just live on studying uh, the bread, uh, word of God, but you actually need the revelational word of God as well. We need regular and frequent revelational word from God to actually be, become the people that God wants us to be. So as well as becoming well-versed in Scripture, excuse the pun, we need to be hearing God speak, bringing revelation to us through Scripture, the prophetic, vision, or many other tools that the Holy Spirit uses. But equally, we can't just live on revelational words from God. And Jesus implies that we still need bread. We still need the written word as our foundation. It is the, and it is actually the logos, the written word, that becomes the hull of our boat, our firm foundation. And God's spoken word, the revelation that he gives us as we go through day to day, the revelation like he gave Smith Wiggles' word around that whole concept of, of um, greater things will you do, which launched him into the ministry which he became famous for. The revelational word, it, it will never disagree with God's written word. We need the Logos word of God for our security and our stability. But with only the Logos, we become dry. And with only the re rema, we can become unstable. We need both. 
And in the verses we've looked at from James, it indicates that through reading and studying the Bible that we are able to grow in wisdom and build our security in who we are. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, who's a servant of God? So that you and me may be thoroughly equipped. Who wants to be thoroughly equipped? For every good work. And maturity will grow through the diligent study of Scripture. Now perhaps you are happy to accept at face value that the Bible you are reading is the inspired true Word of God. And if you're really comfortable with that, that's fantastic and go for it. But perhaps you have also secretly wondered... How do I actually know? And this is what I want us to really consider and look at as we progress through the talk this morning. You know, the word Bible actually means a collection of books. And the Bible is a collection of 66 books that has many writers but only one author. 2 Peter 1.20.21 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, nothing that's written here, came about by the prophets or the writer's own interpretation of things. God is the author. But have we got the right Bible, and is it translated correctly? Great questions. Uh, And this morning I'm going to talk about how we got the New Testament. And uh, let me just give a quick comment on translations so there's two basic fundamental categories of translations you get the type of translation which is a very much a word for word translation from Greek and and what's relevant to us into into English and the New American Standard Version is an example of this where, where you get whole masses of scholars that get together and they debate and they work out and they're trying to look at what were, they, what were the actual Greek words meaning there, what's the closest direct word-for-word translation into English for that, and they work on that and they build it up, and that's a fantastic uh, form of translation. Then you get another style of translation, which, say, the New International Version is that, where it's more of a phrase translation, so they look at the Greek phrases and look at what would be an equivalent Greek uh, English phrase for that. So, so to give you a, perhaps to help you understand how that works, if, if we wanted to uh, translate an English idiom into some other language and, and we, we said something and at the end of it we say next minute, okay. so if you were doing the word for word translation, when you're translating that to another a language, it would say, one minute after this event, this happened. Now, that is a direct word-for-word translation from neck minute. But uh, if we're looking at a phrase translation, where you take sort of the phrase, we'd understand it's uh, someone saying, blah, 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 obviously this happened after it. Can you see the difference between the two? Now, both translations are really valid and both take, have masses of scholars who get together and they debate and they th- thrash this out trying to come up with the, the um, closest match as our English language changes. 
So they are, they are translations. So there is another one uh, type of uh, Bible out there which is more of a paraphrase. So, um, and I think the message and the passion, they are more paraphrases where you don't have the same scholarly uh, broad debating going on about what, how it should work. It's normally maybe just one or two people and the, they will tend to take, say, just English versions and rewrite it in a form which is, is more colloquial, more uh, easy for people to understand. The, now, they can be really enjoyable to read, but they may not have the same level of accuracy as some of the translations. So just be aware of that as you go through studying uh, the Bible. So just a quick note on, on translations. So when you're reading a genuine translation, um, especially the later that a translation has been done, we can be confident that a lot of work has gone in by multiple scholars peer-reviewing each other to ensure that what we have in English represents the Greek as close as possible. However, this doesn't mean that they get the English 100% right. I mean, if you look at... Uh, English in New Zealand and English in, in the UK and English in America, there are differences, right? So, you know, we, we, we need to be aware of that as we actually read Scripture. Um, and, the, and this is why I'd suggest that as a minimum, when you're studying, studying and actually looking into Scripture, get several different types of translations and compare what it's saying so that you get a broader, broader sense and, and having a concordance and having a Bible commentary so that you can look at context around things is really, really helpful as you get into studying scripture. But let's, let's assume the translation work is okay and you know, modern translations are very, very good. If we're going to use the Bible for the foundation for everything we believe, how do we know we have the right books? And if they are the right books, how do we know that what we have today matches the original writings? Let me give a, a couple of examples of questions you might either have or, or face with other people. Some time ago, I was having a coffee with a supplier who wasn't a Christian, and we were talking, talking about the, the Bible, and he said to me, isn't the Bible you have now more or less a case of Chinese whispers? As it gets passed along, the inaccuracies increase, and people rewrite the stories to make them sound increasingly fantastic. And that can be a common secular view. Or perhaps you've heard someone say, what about these other books that have been discovered which show a different view of early Christianity? Who's, who's to say that these other books aren't right and the Bible got it wrong, or the Bible that you have got it wrong? Which can be a common approach by some media if they can find just a hint of dis, uh, conspiracy to discredit the Bible. Let's look at, uh, take, talk briefly about the second question first. Now, there's one, one example of such a book, and it's called The Gospel of Thomas. And it was actually written in the 4th century and found in an ancient Egypt, Egyptian rubbish dump in 1945 called Nag Hammadi. And it made the news when it was found and, and translated because uh, media like to say, well, this is something which discredits the Bible. And the book portrays the author like a twin of Jesus and doesn't focus on the life and death of Jesus but on so-called secret knowledge. 
And those wanting to discredit the validity of the Bible are quick to jump on such books and use them to support their case. However, if you do your research, it is easy to see that these books have no historical credibility in being able to establish the slightest challenge to the Bible. First of all, there is no evidence that the Gospel of Thomas was authored by anyone closely connected with one of the apostles, and certainly not Thomas. Either being, uh, and either being one of the original apostles, including Paul, or having really close connections to the apostles, such as Mark and Luke did, was one of the criteria used for establishing what actually made it into the Bible. And critical analysis of the book of the Gospel of Thomas indicates it was most likely written in the 4th century, well after the passing of the apostles. And they do that by looking at the structure of the sentencing and, and various things like that as they, they do their analysis. And just like books today, there are all sorts of things being written back in the 1st centuries after Christ, including novels and writings of different views, and most writings didn't make it into the Bible. And there's even evidence within the Bible that people like the Apostle Paul wrote other letters that didn't make it into the Bible as well. And books like the Gospel of Thomas come under the category of Gnostic writing. That is, having secret mystical knowledge. And this practice of gaining secret mystical knowledge was a heresy that was starting to become evident even during the time of the New Testament writing and then became quite strong in the first few centuries. And early examples of warnings about it include Paul warning Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, when he says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Now, getting theology wrong like they did uh, with Gnostic thinking is still a danger people can face today. And this is why the hull of our boat needs to be centered in the Logos word of God so that we know we are secure in what we believe and that what we believe is true. It helps us to be certain that we are being taught from the pulpit or receiving through the, that what we're being taught from the pulpit or receiving through the internet or reading in books is true. We need to read and diligently study the Bible to, de to develop that hull of our boat. Interesting, listen to what our church constitution says about the Bible. It says this, The Bible is God's word to us. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living because it is inspired by God. It is the truth without any mixture of doctrinal error. So do we just have to take the Bible on faith that it that it is what we claim it to be, or is there more to the story? Is it just a case of believe it is true because we say it's true? Is the Bible we have today riddled with Chinese whispers, as, as some secular people would say it is? Time for some history lessons. I hope, you, I hope you're finding this okay. This morning we... Uh, we're only going to focus on the New Testament, even then mainly on the first two Gospels, because there's just so much information out there. Uh, we could never hope to do, do it justice at all in, in the time that we have. 
And over time, evidence continues to mount that the New Testament was written while eyewitnesses still lived. And yet there is no evidence anywhere of anyone during the time of the writing of the New Testament disagreeing with it or disputing what was written. And to me, that's really encouraging. Now, let's look at some of the estimated writing times for the New Testament. And I've got, uh, got these dates. I don't know whether you can read them. I need my glasses on to see things far away, not close up. Uh, but you can see the crucifixion, AD 33. And uh, from my uh, NIV study Bible, when I look at the start of each book, it sort of gives you a bit of a synopsis and who wrote it and when about it was written. And you can see dates from around AD 50 through to about AD 95, that according to the NIV study Bible, um, the, the New Testament books were written. But again, there's mounting indication among scholars that some of the books may have been written earlier than AD 50. Less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Practically no time at all. That's like someone this decade writing a book on the Christchurch earthquakes. Now, if they got it wrong, do you think we wouldn't be able to disagree with it? Christianity and the Bible have never been afraid of close scrutiny. In fact, seeking truth as Christians is encouraged. It's part of who we are as Christ followers is to be seekers of truth. And since the early church through to now, there have been scholars researching and recording their discoveries, supporting the fact that the Bible we have is the true Logos word of God. That close, and that close scrutiny is another reason we can have confidence in the Bible. No other book has, has ever had the study and the scrutiny that the Bible has. And one of the things I've found helpful in my study over the years was actually doing some courses on church history. Really helpful. It helps to know where we came, come from. It helps to know where we get this book from. Um, right now, another option some might find really helpful is to join Brian Watts' Connect Group, where he's really passionate about looking into the Bible, and I'm sure that with his uh, bookshop, he has masses of resource available for people who are interested in doing more looking into this. Now, um, Ha, let's have a look at how and when Matthew and Mark were written. First of all, let's look at a couple of interesting pieces of evidence. In AD 180, a book was published which was meant to be read as a type of early Christian historical novel called The Acts of Peter. And lots of the stories written in the novel we know actually happened, but like any novel, there will be there were embellishments and, and creativity. But in the 20th chapter of the book, there is a story of the Apostle Peter entering the house of one Senator Marcellus. And Peter goes over to the dining room where the gospel scroll is being read. And in the, um, Peter takes the scroll, rolls it up, and proceeds to tell the story as a first-hand eyewitness. Now, whether this story actually occurred or not, one of the really interesting things we can take from it is that the author of the Acts of Peter in 8180 believed 
there were gospel scrolls in existence while Peter was still alive. And Peter was crucified upside down by Nero in AD 64. So it had, had to exist before then. And like this little piece of the puzzle, there are many, many pieces that support at least the first two Gospels being written not long after Jesus' death and resurrection. Way too much for us to even scratch the surface of this morning. But another piece of the puzzle was the discovery of a fragment of Mark's Gospel. In 1947, at a place called Qumran, Q-U-M-R-A-M, excuse if I don't get the pronunciation right, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered giving scholars a completely new angle on the study of ancient documents. These were documents stored by a Jewish sect, hinted at in the New Testament, called the Essenes. And because of the complete destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, and surrounding areas before this, any documents discovered in these caves needed to be placed there before AD 68, when the caves were closed as the Romans advanced. And in Cave 7 at Qumran, a fragment of Mark's Gospel was found and dated at around AD 50 or earlier, meaning that for it to get uh, there... In one of these caves, the original copy had to have been written several years before this, possibly around AD 48, as little as 15 years after Jesus walked the planet. And as more and more documents have been discovered, dated, compared and translated, these have fed into the strengthening of the accuracy of the Bible we have today. And we can be more, even more confident in the Bible than our forebears did 100 years ago because there is more and more evidence and it just keeps mounting. And none of it detracts from it. It all supports the Bible that we have today. So how did these Gospels come about? Could people have recorded the talks of Jesus as he spoke? Now, during the time of Christ, there was wide use of both wax tablets, which there's an example of some wax tablets there for writing notes, as used by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, which is recorded in the Gospels, when he was unable to speak and said his name will be John, as he wrote on a wax tablet. There's also shards of pottery known as Ostraca, O-S-T-R-A-C-A. Um, that's an example there. And they were also regularly used, handy for brief notes or even lengthy, lengthy texts. One of the things that the church were doing this year is working through the Gospel of Matthew. Now let's consider who Matthew was. Levi Matthew was well, the wealthy, well-qualified customs official, multilingual, at ease with people from different countries and cultures, who suddenly becomes a dedicated follower of Jesus. And Matthew wasn't just an average tax collector either. He was based in Capranorm which was a bustling centre of trade, the joining of multiple trade routes. It was a, a, a top prize place to be a tax collector. You really had to work up the, the hierarchy to, to get there. And even before the time of Christ, there was a shorthand writing method called Tyronean Notes that was in common use. And it was really likely that someone like Matthew would regularly use such a system for recording information in his busy tax office. It is easy to expect that Matthew 
was expert at shorthand. And so if, if you take that on board, and this is speculation, so it's not, there's no, because no one is alive who was around then, it's speculation, so I won't, won't say that, but it's speculation based on what scholars have looked and seen as a real possibility through, through what was underst is understood for the time. And so it's not too much of a leap, therefore, for us to imagine the disciple Matthew listening to Jesus teaching and writing it down in shorthand form on, a, on pieces of ostraca. Much the same as many of you record your notes when listening to me preach on a Sunday. Thanks, Carl. And keep them for later reference. So it's really possible that Matthew was writing stuff down in shorthand. Jesus goes through the crucifixion and rises from dead, and so the early church starts. In the book of Acts, we read about a disciple called John Mark, a companion of the apostle Paul for a while, and a close friend of the apostle Peter. A man, a man called Papias, who was an early bishop and an acquaintance of the apostle John, writing about AD 100, he said that Peter was in Rome in AD 42 and Mark was with him. The Christian historian Eusebius, E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S, supports that in his writing in AD 265 and Jerome, who translated the Greek into the Latin Vulgate, also uh, says that. There is a hint about Peter going to Rome in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, when, when Luke writes, after escaping prison, it is said that Peter left for another place. And that is uh, believed to be, be Rome, because Luke was sponsored by Theophilus, who was a, a high official in Rome for publishing his gospel and his um, in the book of Acts. And it's really interesting that you... Uh, Luke doesn't want to get Theophilus into trouble with the authorities and you see when he does his Gospel of John and he doesn't name Peter as the disciple who cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant and uh, here in, in the book of Acts he doesn't want to say that someone who has escaped from prison so therefore a criminal um, that Theophilus knows that he's in Rome so he says he goes to another place so Mark spends time with Peter in Rome, and while there is writing down the stories Peter shares about his time with Jesus. And this is supported in 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter uses Babylon to describe Rome and sends greeting also from Mark. Peter returns to Jerusalem sometimes between AD 44 and definitely there in AD 48, when he was present at the Apostolic Council mentioned in Acts 15. And by then, Mark would have written down the sayings of Peter at least as a draft. Clement of Alexandria, the theologian and historian who lived from AD 150 to AD 214, recorded several points about Mark's writings. Firstly, about the initial draft or collection of Peter's sayings, uh, Peter said this, when the matter of gospel, or sorry, he, uh, Clement says this, when the matter of the gospel came to Peter's knowledge, he neither expressly hindered it nor actively encouraged it, indicating that John Mark prepared a draft which wasn't the final inspired version we know. Having written and published a book myself, I know how often you have to rewrite sections to get to the finished product. 
But of the finished product, Clement recalls that Peter was pleased at the zeal of the Roman Christians and ratified the gospel for study in the churches. Just pick up on that. Meaning that Peter was encouraging the churches to treat Mark's gospel as scripture, which would have been before AD 64. Clement also said that it was the Holy Spirit who revealed to Peter what had been achieved by Mark. Do you see the significance of this? Less than 30 years after Jesus walked the planet, we have parts of the New Testament already being treated as Scripture. Eyewitnesses endorsing them as true and people who were discipled by Jesus treating them as Scripture. Mark's Gospel reaches the other apostles, either in draft form or as the finished product, probably around that AD 48 when the council was on. Uh, we can imagine that, uh, and we know that Mark was back in Jerusalem around then. We can imagine Matthew looking at it, realises the potential in his own shorthand archive that he possibly has, and he decides to write his own version and writes in a more chronological and Hebrew style. So we get the first two Gospels. And... Uh, is there other evidence around when we know these started to become scripture or New Testament writings became scripture? You know, the final decision of what was scripture and what wasn't occurred at the Council of Carthage in AD 397. But the books were already being treated as scripture well before this. And we've already mentioned the example of Peter referring to um, Mark's gospel as scripture. Other examples actually you've written in the Bible. Second Peter 3.16 says about Paul's writings. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, implying by other scriptures that Paul's writing were scriptures. 1 Timothy 5 Verse 18 says, For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. That phrase, the worker deserves his wages, which Paul is saying is Scripture, the only place that is found is in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 10, 17. And so Paul is implying that Luke's Gospel is Scripture. As early as AD 63, when he wrote the first book of Timothy. So what I've hoped to do this morning is to give us the very briefest look at some of the research and study that continues to this day that the Bible we have is God's holy word and we can have complete trust in this. Scholars, theologians, historians and archaeologists have spent their lives through the centuries studying and checking and verifying that what we have is true. No other writing comes close to have the proof the Bible has. We can absolutely trust the Logos Word of God to be the hull of our boat, to provide security in times of trouble, to be something worth dying for. Choose to be, friends, choose to be people who aren't double-minded and unstable, but choose to be people who are mature, full of wisdom, and who passionately study the Word of God. As the band comes, listen to these last encouraging words from Scripture. Paul writing to Timothy, what you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. In Psalms 119, your word is a lamp for my feet 
a light on my path. And, and also, all your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal, in Psalms 12. And the word of the Lord, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. And Proverbs 30, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And I, I hope maybe that today I've given you just a little glimpse of some information that you could use to answer people who may ask you questions. But most of all, I hope that each one, one of us, perhaps like Smith Wigglesworth, takes prior, priority over reading and studying what God has given us to know him better and to grow in maturity. Let's stand.